The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com. Empire. It's not just having the data, it's how you translate it. Oh, it's huge. The numbers can be presented to you, but ultimately, I think the strongest athletes are the ones that use that data to almost lie to themselves. That's not the, that's not the right place. Use the data to tell the story that they want that's going to give them the most confidence. And I, I think that's, I was thinking about it this morning, and I think that's what I did. That's former Olympian and world champion freestyle skier Hannah Kearney who knows training involves not just new analytics, but personalizing the message. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Hannah Curdy and Dr. Marcus Deutsch from Fusion Sport are part of the Human Performance Summit in Park City, Utah here in October. And both have unique perspectives into what makes a champion these days. But we're going to start with the opening of the baseball postseason, which begins tomorrow, as of the time of this taping. Analytics and team building, they've put Houston on the innovation map in recent seasons. And in future ones, the future is now with the introduction of a lot of new tech. All this data collection is changing the games, and we'd like to believe, for the most part, positively. But there are clearly issues that need to be resolved before you're going to get everyone on board in a tech revolution. Wearables, in theory, help everyone understand their bodies better and thus help guide improvement in performance and recovery. But they can also provide some information that athletes with high-leveraged contracts may not want to share. Britt Giroli from The Athletic joins us now. Hi, Britt. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, let's start with what specific data collection devices are the players most concerned about? Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, obviously we're, we become a data-driven society, not just in sports. Um, you know, I, I wear a Fitbit. I know everyone's, you know, got everything monitored, you know, in terms of the watches and, and things like that. But I think that mostly with the players, it comes down to rights. You know, I think um, they don't want teams having access to, to data that, may hurt them down the road, whether that's potential injuries, uh, whether that's something that could impact their performance, it could be used against them in arbitration. Um, I think that's really the, 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 the concern of the players when you look at data moving forward. Where do HIPAA laws fall into all of this discussion? Um, I mean, certainly they're a, they're a part of this discussion, but um, I think if you're a, a team and you're looking for ways around it, um, as I was told by people that, that work in baseball, there's easy easy ways to create a different database, and as long as it's not a medical database, you can title it performance or really whatever you want, and that's where you can kind of dump all that data in. So certainly there's HIPAA laws, and certainly those are easy to comply with, but there's also easy workarounds when we're talking about data. How about the union? What's, the, what's their position on all of this stuff at this point? Well, they're, they're alarmed by it. You know, Tony Clark told me this spring, and he's reiterated that position several times, that 
you know, the, the data, the player's data is their own personal data. And, you know, when they negotiated the last C- CBA, this was very early on in, in terms of wearable tech. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit uh, of stuff in there that basically says it's the player's right. Uh, but like I mentioned with the workaround, uh, they can have these guys wear them in the minor leagues. No one's going to say no. Uh, you know, the minor leaguers aren't covered by the major league CBA, so it's a really easy way to get data on everyone in your organization. And, you know, Tony Clark, who you know, has a son, is even more troubled with the fact that, you know, MLB has a lot of deals with little leagues and youth tournaments. And, you know, parents kind of look at these waivers and just sign away their lives. And a lot of times that includes data, that includes wearing vests. Uh, you know, the the amount of data available, not just at the big league level, but that trickles down is, it's something that each parent really needs to be cognizant of, no matter what level your your child is playing at. Uh, obviously, we can list all the things, the reasons why the teams would want it, and and for good reasons, and and ones that would help them inform decisions that maybe the players don't want them to be informed about. Um, as for the league, though, they want this stuff for a lot of other reasons too, right? They want to be able to track things, augmented reality, maybe gambling, right? All of that comes into play here. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that comes into play. Uh, that doesn't necessarily hit you at first, but certainly, I mean, what would a, you know, the next Bryce Harper or Manny Machado as a 12 year old, what would, you know, MLB like to do with their data? Um, are they using it to, to kind of find the next superstars? You know, are they using it, as you said, with the gambling? Um, so certainly there's a lot of avenues you can take with this. And, uh, listen, this isn't, this isn't, uh, the end here. I mean, we're just, kind of at the tip of the iceberg in terms of data. So it'll be fascinating to see what ends up happening in terms of control and usage in the next CBA. Um, that's where I wanted to leave this with. Where do you see this going over the next one to three years? Clearly, they're in a tug of war about it. It's not going to stop. It's going to continue to progress. Where do they find some common ground on all of this? The players, you know, from the, the guys that we've talked to, they really kind of see it as a personal thing. I mean, you know, guys are okay uh wearing something that monitors their sleep and and going to the team if they have questions. But I think, you know, by and large, they want this data to be something that's very personal that, you know, they don't necessarily feel like their employer, which in this case is the team, should have access to. And you look at it, it's not just MLB. I mean, would you want your employer um, to have access to, you know, what your sleep habits are like, what your nutrition habits are like, um, and the ability to kind of dock you or – uh, make a case against you depending on what you're doing not at the stadium, not at the field, not at your job. So uh, I think it's a slippery slope, but I, I, I don't see how the players would kind of give up those rights. Um, certainly it's a very personal thing, and it's something that's going to continue to grow. And as I mentioned, there are workarounds around this. The minor leagues, uh, you know, it seems to be the biggest one in terms of those guys are not going to say no to anything. They don't have any rights. Uh, so I don't foresee the team kind of putting up too big a, of an issue because I think there's too many loopholes for them to really complain. But, you know, this data, this trackman and, and stat cast, all that, it, it's in every stadium now. And I think the wearable tech, you know, the K-Vest and things like that, uh, players want to have control over. And I think that's going to continue. Uh, the issue is, is what's next? Where do you draw the line? And what what comes next? Because, like I said, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with this data. So, um, it's exciting, but it's also, I think, alarming. Britt Giroli, you can see her on MLB Network, and you can read her on the pages of The Athletic. Thank you, Britt. Yeah, thank you. Up next, former U.S. Olympic freestyle skier Hannah Kearney on the rapid upgrade in training tech. This is the Future Sport Podcast. 
This week is an accomplished freestyle skier from the United States team, Hannah Kearney, who has won two Olympic medals, eight world championship medals, been part of 46 World Cups, and she'll be part of the Human Performance Summit coming up this month in Utah. Nice to have you here, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Um, What do you think the goals are for a summit like this? What do you want people to know about? Well, I'm talking about data and how it helped me become a better athlete, but um, also telling stories, warning stories about how data isn't everything, um, especially to the athlete who is a human being and emotions drive um, some of their performances as well. I think the most exciting thing about this uh, summit is having all of these people who care greatly about human performance, uh, whether it be in the military or in sport, together in one room being able to share stories. I think that's going to be the most valuable part, so I think my part is just a nice distraction from that. So there's a couple parts to that that I'd like to address with you. Um, one is just the literal data of how to get better athletically. Let's, we'll keep the mental part of this out of it for a, a moment and the emotional part of it. How have you seen that data change the way athletes like yourself have trained through the years? Well, in my career, it changed immensely because at the beginning, we barely had a gym. We didn't have a trainer. This is for the U.S. mobile team. We didn't have any testing results. And then slowly throughout my 13-year career on the team, that became more and more significant part of training process. Um, it, and now the next step, and this is, it was just happening at the end of my career, is the digitization of all this information so it can actually um, be used more than just anecdotally. Um, you know, one athlete's data is only as good as uh, if you can compare it to other athletes, to themselves over time. Um, it has to be looked at outside of isolation. Being able to store, um, compare, and record all this data will allow that. So initially, when you said that we don't even have a gym, we don't have these type of facilities to even to to have the type of results that we're looking for, at least initially, was that because your discipline wasn't taken seriously enough? I mean, there was a combination of things. We didn't have as much money. Yes, the sport was newer. And then some of it was my own personal choices. And age. So, had there, um, have I been desperate for that uh, information and um, that sort of support? I probably could have found it and been supported by the team. But I was a 16-year-old in high school, 2,000 miles away from where the team was headquartered, and so it was just easy to okay, I'll just play soccer. That's my cross training, um, which was great until I graduated high school. So 16-year-olds now, uh, I'm sure you're around them. You see them. They're the future of the sport. Um, are they different? Do they look at all of this differently? I, the fun thing about our sport is that I was, I think, 17 when they allowed backflip. So all of a sudden I went from a kid doing, um, most people don't know names and tricks, but I was not going off flip. I was going off jumps and doing silly little spread eagles and tricks with my legs. Then uh, at that point, uh, they allowed backflips, and all of a sudden, this this became a new component of my sport. And I was like, okay, I guess I need to learn how to go upside down. Now, kids getting into the sport know that from the get-go, um, have much better air awareness, <laughs> and have been doing flips since they were small, which is far better, far safer, 
um, the younger you are when you learn, the better off you are. So that's one of the greatest changes. I think there's more information that it's okay to lift weights at a younger age. That's actually good for your um, bone density and your bone development. Um, the things that were rumors or um, you know frowned upon when I was a kid are not necessarily. Um, however, the counter story to that is that there might be some over-specialization happening at a young age because um, as sports get more competitive, um, that tends to happen, and I don't think that's great for anyone, but I do understand why it happens, too. So when you were younger, too, um, and all this data was coming in, and it was new, and it's being implemented, they, they had to translate this back to you to, to figure out how to implement it to make you better. Um, have you seen an evolution of the translation for the younger athletes so that it can be implemented more efficiently? That I have been far enough outside of um, the actual testing realm for about seven years that I'm not sure. I would imagine there have been strong belts in that. What my experience with that was the data was pretty much just presented as card excuse me, holds hard data, and it was up to me to um, interpret it. There, I mean, they explained what it meant, but it was not softened in any way. It was not. Um, presented like it was for 16 year because at this point in my career, I was a developed athlete, and I spoke numbers. That resonated with me. And that's what I well, mentioned earlier, that not every athlete is motivated by making their numbers change. I was, um, and so it worked out well, I think, for the athletes that aren't. You have to frame it, and you also have to look at, say, a test results um, or results or their skiing results over time and um, look at them together sort of more holistically. So why have we been training for six months, but you're not getting any stronger? Okay, but we need to look at your body fat composition. Are you losing weight? So you're not, or, you know, that, why is your performance suffering even though you are stronger? Those types of things. You have to compare the numbers to each other for each individual athlete. Uh, I want to ask you about wearable technology because what you do is so specific. It's so interesting and different. And the degree of difficulty, obviously, is, is far different than many other sports that athletes take part in. Have you seen a change in how wearable technology can help the freestyle skier? Well, I think good old-fashioned heart rate monitors are always going to be incredibly helpful. Beyond that, we have used things such as um, devices that measure the G-forces on your body during turns. Um, it's almost like a GPS. <laughs> uh, sorry, not GPS. Well, I think it uses that, but then it also measures the forces. Of every turn of your landing, of your jump, um, that can be used to predict when injuries will happen. And that's where I, I'm like fascinated by that stuff, but also... As a high-level athlete, there's only so much you have time to um, bother with, and something that's going to tell you when you're going to have an injury is probably not something you're interested in. Sure, you'll let the data be collected, but don't tell me about it, right? Like, too late, <laughs> bad point. That's something that pays off generations later if you've been able to collect the data. Um, I, again, because I like data, I, I think there is a role for that um, in, in training. I think it allowed me some wearable technologies, for example, heart rate monitors, um, allowed me to push myself harder than I ever would have because I was like, you know, I feel terrible. If I wasn't, if I was just listening to my body, I would, I would quit. However, I had my heart rate monitor. I had the test results from um, lactate threshold tests I had done with the ski team, and I knew that I was okay to keep my heart rate at that level for 10 minutes, even though it felt terrible. And so I pushed through. Mm. So that sort of thing. That's where I found data and test results actually quite motivating, but that did not work for everyone. You know, I, I like talking to the high-level athletes, too, especially in, in yours where instincts really matter here, I would think, in the moment. Yeah. The instincts need, really need to take over, and all this data is giving you all this information. And I would think that the last thing you want anything to do is you're second-guessing anything in that moment. 
So what about good old-fashioned instincts? Where does that play a role in, in a championship-level athlete in a discipline like yours? Oh, it's huge. The numbers can be presented to you, but ultimately I think the strongest athletes are the ones that use that data to almost lie to themselves. That's not the, that's not the right – but use the data to tell the story that they want that's going to give them the most confidence. And I, I, I think that's – I was thinking about it this morning, and I think that's what I did because it wasn't just the numbers that gave me confidence. They did. It was like, okay, I did 1,400 squats since last season. Okay, great. Who, who cares? So I would use that number and be like, I bet no one else did that number. Or I would say, if no one else knows they did that number, that makes me a better athlete. I deserve to win or I deserve to perform well because I prepared properly, that sort of thing. So I think I use data as, instead of a sports psychologist, I use data. Um, and I was my own sports psychologist using um, the data. So I had to put in the work, of course. It wasn't all just crazy talk. Um, but I did use it to help me. And that's where the instinct um, played a role. So if something didn't sit right, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Or, I would, or if some number didn't look right, I wouldn't use that number in my story that I was telling myself. Um, let me go back to the idea of the emotional wellness too. That, that's not something we, we touch on a lot here because everything is so focused on the technology, data collection, wearables, whatever it may be to help athletes and teams get better performance. Um, can you kind of address the emotional wellness part of this and where you think that was when you started as a young athlete and where you think that may be now? I think it has grown in importance. Um, in turn, I think teams are really individualizing training for athletes, realizing that they're uh, people and not, you know, even on a team, your goal is the same, win the game, but um, each athlete might respond differently to different motivations. Um, my story about that is that we had an excellent strength and conditioning coach um, from 2009 to 2013. He kind of really helped change my career, um, mostly because I trusted him, but he gave us the four female mogul skiers right before, the morning before our 2010 Olympic competition, he gave us each a card. And I assumed everyone's card was pretty much the same with a nice note in it from him. But I learned only last year that they were very, very different. And my card, as you can probably guess from the story that told, was just a list of data. I filled out diary entries every day of my workouts. I lived 2,000 miles away from him. So for the whole post-season or off-season leading into the Olympics, all my training data was compiled um, in this database, and he put it on this card. And all he said was, like, you're ready, see well, something like that. And I was like, yes, that is a very inspiring card. What I learned later was the other cards were much more emotional. It was, like, about feelings and believing in the person. That wouldn't have worked for me. That would not have been inspirational or motivating. But for my other teammates, they didn't care about the data or maybe he didn't even have it. I don't know, but he did not add that to their card. Um, and that's where, um, that's why he was a good trainer, because they knew that people have different emotional needs. Um, and, and you are now a personal trainer, and you are working in, uh, with a lot of youth sports um, as part of the Youth Sports Alliance um, in Park City. Um, what are you finding out about young athletes now? What, what are you learning about them? Oh, I have lots of lessons. A, parents are delusional. <laughs> uh, the general level of athleticism is a little scary, and I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of young athletes' careers just to help them with foundational, um, fundamental foundational movements um, because that, I think, in the long run prevents injuries. But what's great about our programming is it's not specific to a sport. It really is designed for that um, to help athletes just become better um, rounded, and I think that's like one of the best techniques to take to training. Um, I do use some testing 
um, and we as the, at the gym and then also in my private training uh, use some test results. But based on that story I just told you, I'm careful that to some people it's not particularly motivating. Um, all they look at is like, oh, I'm so weak. That's what they see in a, in a strength test result, not, oh, I have so much room for improvement. So you have to be careful about, again, how you present the data and who you test at what point in time. Parents being delusional is nothing new, though. I will, I will tell you that. <laughs> it's new to me. I just, I just assume people are like grounded in some sort of uh, rational thought process. But that's um, yeah. When it comes to their children, uh, they're not, and I think my parents are guilty of that too. I mean, Let's for for you too, though. I mean, like this is interesting. I mean, you're working with with young kids. Uh, the likelihood of any of them being you is very slim, right? That's very slim that someone gets to that particular level. It is. How do you control kind of what the bar should be for what they do for you and under your eye? Um, I think most people have no idea about my past at all. I'm just Joe Schmo at the gym. I'm just a personal <laughs> trainer who's certified. So at that, I think I, that's not completely true. I do work with a few mobile skiers, so in my sport, um, they're aware that I was good at that sport. Um, and But what's fun is, like, I've never even seen these girls ski. I actually don't know what they ski. Like, my job is solely focused on helping them enjoy the experience in the gym um, because, uh, if we're honest, the off-training, the dry land training, ends up becoming a majority of the time. You can't be on snow every day of the year. You can't be in the gym every day. So you've got to enjoy that part of the training. So trying to expose them to fun elements of training, um, creative elements, and helping them get stronger, um, which at their age is um, really important. Just prevent it. If you have an injury, that at, when you're 16, that really gets you back. You can learn more from Hannah at the Human Performance Summit this month in Park City, Utah. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Hannah. Thank you kindly. Fusion Sport will be running the Human Performance Summit, and their CEO, Dr. Marcus Deutsch, joins us for a preview next. So let's take a minute here to thank our friends at 3Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers, but that's not all. They've helped grow a bunch of sports tech startups like Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. But they're also experts in user experience, cloud APIs, and artificial intelligence. So if you're looking for a dev partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen. At Advance, you will. That's the number 3advance.com. And tell them Future Sport sent you. Our guest this week is CEO and co-founder of Fusion Sport and the smart-based platform, Dr. Marcus Deutsch. How are you, Marcus? Hi, morning. How are you doing? Great to have you here. Uh, you guys are having a human performance um, panel that is heading to Park City, Utah for the 2019 Summit. What's going on? Yep. What are you guys doing? Oh, well, it's great. So it's an annual event we put on. We're doing one here and one in Australia, uh, and then in March, one in Europe. So basically just pulling together... Um, a lot of the leading minds in, in the human performance area, um, specifically related to things like sports technology and, and data and uh, injury prevention and those sorts of areas. And, and uh, getting them together, COSA hosted this year with um, 
one of our clients, US Ski and Snowboard, over in Park City. And yeah, just getting together for, for three days of, uh, of really focusing on, on how we can uh, yeah drive drive our humans to perform better and, and get injured and, and ill less. Um, your platform is used by a lot of teams and other organizations as, as well as like as the military. What do they get out of using this platform? I mean, basically, our role, you know, that's, we're obviously living in a world now where there's a lot of data. Uh, there's data from things like wearables or surveys or blood testing or just all of these different things. At the end of the day, what what what, what we do is we pull that data together because humans are complex. You can't just look at data in isolation. You need to look at the whole picture. Um, so you really need to get everything in one place. Um, and, and that saves people a lot of time, but it also allows people like coaches and medical staff to make better decisions um, because they just have better information to work with and more, more insights to work with. Um, so ultimately, you know, it's all about... Um, keeping people as ready as possible so whether that's ready to go to war or ready to play on a, on a court or ready to dance on a stage or even just ready to go to work um, and also you know keeping people at their best but also minimizing their chances of missing time due to being injured or sick um, have you seen training methodologies change um, through the use of all of this and if so how have you seen that change yeah, absolutely. Um, we're in a pretty young industry um, compared to something like medical science. Sports science is actually pretty young. It's only sort of probably about 50, 60 years old. Um, and so it's still, there's still a lot of paradigm shifts happening. Um, I guess a good example from a training point of view um, is, uh, look, at, you know, I guess if you go back even 10 years, the, the, the tendency to, on how to train people was sort of a, a real bang or bust methodology. You would tend to... Um, really sort of hammer people uh, and then let them recover. It was sort of almost a, a really wavy way of, of training people, of, of sort of smashing them and letting them bounce back. Um, what's what's come to light over the last sort of four or five years is that that's actually a really dangerous way to do it and that the key is actually to train really consistently, consistently and actually manage those peaks and troughs and smooth them out as much as you possibly can. So there's actually been a kind of a real about face in that. Um, and in other areas too, like nutrition, you know, I mean, everyone knows about the, the sort of the, the still raging debate between high carb diets and high fat diets and things like that. There's still a lot of paradigm shifts happening in our industry, which is really cool. Um, can you kind of navigate um, where you are with who can, should um, have the information that you gather on athletes? Uh, I mean, it, look, we typically work at the moment in, a, in an environment where uh, athletes are working with people like strength coaches, sports scientists, uh, medical staff, athletic trainers, and coaches, obviously, um, sports psychologists, nutritionists. Um, it, it's really about the support staff, uh, you know, getting that whole picture and being able to share that information. So, you know, uh, for, for someone like a, a medical, for a doctor or an athletic trainer, it's really important that they understand the context of an athlete athlete's body from getting information from people like strength coaches or sports scientists so that they know, you know, what's the context of this injury that's presenting or, or the risk. Um, so that's the, the, the typical model, I guess, and that's pretty much the same in, in military performing arts or, or whatever. Um, we do obviously have to be very careful about who sees what. Um, you know, we, we, we abide very closely to things like HIPAA compliance. And, so, and, and, and that's another purpose of our system is to be able to 
closely control who can see what about those assets and make sure that people can only see the appropriate data uh, that they that they need to see and that they've been trained to to to, to um, properly interpret. What's your background? How did you get into this? Uh, I've got a I've got a PhD in uh, exercise physiology in rugby, believe it or not. Uh, so um, I did that in New Zealand. I'm Aussie, but uh, as you can probably tell, but did that in New Zealand in the late 90s, and uh, I just got into I, my my PhD involved doing a lot of um, testing and profiling athletes, and, uh, and and just generated a lot of data. Um, and uh, at the time, I, I met uh, a co-founder of the company, a guy called Joe Cole in New Zealand, and he uh, he was a um, similar kind of thing. He was an athlete. He was a biochemist. He did computer science. He did statistics. Um, and and uh, one of those people who, who just can do all those things. And and uh, he's now a coach as well. And he just really, um, yeah, we got together and saw this explosion of data coming. You know, this was when Bluetooth was brand new and Wi-Fi was brand new. Um, you know, wearable technology was just sort of hitting the market uh, back around the early 2000s. And we just thought that there was going to be this major explosion of data in our in our industry so we, we thought we better get involved in that um what's the goal of this particular summit what, what are you looking to achieve oh look for us it's really about just getting together and sharing um and and, and really pushing our industry forward our, our industry is still as i said pretty young um and uh you know it's so it's really about just getting everyone to to share what they do obviously what we do with all of our clients is is confidential so we can't sort of share that so we love to get them together and have them, you know, share with each other and, and sort of uh, explain what they're doing and just give ideas. And it just, I think it just pushes the whole industry forward, which is really important. Um, yeah, that's obviously good for business for us and, and for all of the other sports technology companies um, to, to push that forward and just drive knowledge um, and just to celebrate. You know, we, we just like to get everyone together and have a good social as well. It's lots of fun and, and just catch up with everyone. Dr. Marcus Deutsch is the CEO and co-founder of Fusion Sport. Thank you, Dr. Deutsch. My pleasure. Have a great day. That will do it for us this week. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.